This classic Encounters podcast is brought to you by Encounters North. To learn more about our podcast videos and projects and to support our work, please visit EncountersNorth.org. Hi, this is Richard Nelson for Encounters, a program of observations, experiences, and reflections on the world we live in. I'm about to start on one of those things that just completely epitomizes winter and one of the great pleasures of winter. The nearly full moon is standing high and the Christmas lights are reflected on the fresh, new, glazed ice of Swan Lake. And this is the very first day of ice skating here. My first ice skating session since last winter, but certainly not the first of my life. I'm just finishing tying on these skates and I'm gonna stand up here and glide out onto this, ooh, beautiful, just really perfect ice. Well, a little less than perfect. I see it's got some, it's got some little bumps in it, but oh man, this feels good, you know? What easier way is there to move than to have these blades on your feet and glide over smooth ice that has not a flake of snow on it. The ice itself is plenty thick and it's very, very clear as I'm gliding along here near the shore. I can look down and see the bottom and see the stems of the pond weeds and the lilies, lily pads reaching up through the clear water and through the clear ice. And a lot of the little leaves are frozen into the surface of the ice. There are cracks here and there where you can see that the ice has gotten pretty thick, four or five inches, I guess. Oh, what a beautiful feeling this is. Funny thing about ice skating, you know, if you've, if you skated for a long time, it's like riding a bicycle. You're just a tiny bit unsteady when you first get on those skates and then pretty quickly it all comes back to you. Well, I started ice skating when I was six or seven years old, I guess, in southern Wisconsin where I grew up. And I remember my mom bought me this pair of metal ice skate deals that you would strap onto your shoes and they had two blades and you'd sort of wobble along on those and then eventually I graduated to uh, regular ice skates. When I was growing up boys and girls both mostly used figure skates. We didn't didn't use hockey skates very often. There weren't that hockey wasn't as popular as it became later. So I'm wearing my skates that oh man I hate to think how old these babies are. They must be 30 years old or so, and they were made before all the fancy technology nowadays that makes ice skates warm and cozy. And these, these babies, you know, it's like you're, you got your feet strapped into these stiff kind of leather shoe deals, but it's what I'm used to. When we were growing up, we, uh, 
We sometimes played hockey in our figure skates. We sometimes played football, which was what we enjoyed more on our skates. We, uh, yeah, we broke a few bones and cracked our heads a few times. We also loved to get out on the ice at the beginning of the season like it is right now and skate along and peer down into the underwater world through this clear pane of ice that we glide along on. I remember seeing turtles swimming along under the water. I remember seeing muskrats zipping back and forth underneath us. How strange it must have looked to them to peer up through the ice and see these vertical primates gliding around. When I got older, in my high school and early college years, I was crazy about ice boating. Ice boats are like a sailboat with three runners, one for steering, which is either in the front or the back, and then a kind of a cross piece and two runners either in the back or the front. The different styles of ice boats work either way. And the thing I want to tell you about ice boats is they really go fast. 80 or 100 miles an hour is not uncommon in an ice boat. They're a high-tech thing. You kind of sit in this tubular fuselage in the fancier ones, and uh, you're way down in this thing. And when you're going that speed, and you're, where you're sitting is maybe four or five inches off the ice, you really can feel that speed. The sails are kind of like, it's sort of set up like a Hobie cat with a very flat sail, and uh, it really roars and rushes when you're going along in an ice boat. So that was, that was how I got started with a very long and close and sort of loving relationship, I would say, with ice. I'm skating now at the upper end of uh, Swan Lake where the ice is very, very smooth and there is not yet a single track. I am inscribing the first ice skate tracks on this part of the lake and pretty soon this thing will go from a place with my single track to a bit of a scribble from the mini tracks of the other skaters who are getting started out here on the lake. Eventually the whole lake will be inscribed everywhere with this wild chaos of ice skate tracks. I'm sort of gliding now with this chilly north wind, it must be in the low 20s out here, gliding down into the lights toward all the young people who are skating down there. My interest in ice turned professional eventually. I uh, ended up living in northern Alaska, first with Inupiaq Eskimo people, and then with Gwich'in and Koyukon Indians. And during those years, I spent a lot of time traveling around on the ice with people during their subsistence activities, which is what I was doing. I was trying to learn about how people hunt and trap and fish and survive in their northern world and to write about that. This meant that I traveled literally thousands of miles in that one winter that I lived in the village of Chalkitsik up near Fort Yukon with Gwich'in people, I calculated that I traveled about 10,000 miles by dog team and snow machine during that one winter. Can you hear the little vibrating in my voice as I go bumping along on these, toward the uh, 
uh, west end of Swan Lake, the ice is a little bit rougher. I'm now starting to skate into where there's some young people. It looks like a teenage couple holding hands, and he's skating backwards, and she's skating frontwards, and it reminds me of my own younger days. Anyway, I lived up there, up in the interior, and uh, did all this traveling and subsistence living, and much of that involved getting around during the winter. I traveled during the winter. I lived in the village of Chalkitsik with a man named Sam Herbert, and he taught me an awful lot about ice. Freeze up in that part of the world comes in early October, and uh, eventually when there's snow on the ground and snow covering the ice, people start their wide winter travels to hunt and to run their trap lines. The ice transforms that north country. It transforms life in that part of the world. There is an endlessly sprawling network of smooth roadways on the frozen rivers and sloughs and lakes. The ice, of course, early in the season can be extremely dangerous, especially on the rivers. In areas where there are fast water riffles, the constant movement of the current prevents the development of thick ice and some places where the water is fast enough, even in the intense cold of 50 and 60 and 70 below zero, the ice never freezes very solidly. So it's, uh, it's very, very dangerous. As you're traveling along during cold periods of minus 20, minus 30 and colder, if you keep a close eye out ahead of you as you're zipping along a snow machine or dog team, you watch in the, along the rivers for a plume of fog rising above the surface of the river. In the cold weather, that reminds you or, or shows you that there's open water there. But oftentimes, it's much more subtle than that. You may, for example, uh, just have to know that this particular area you're going through is a place where the ice stays dangerously thin, either in the early winter or all through the winter. I remember traveling once with Sam Herbert. Uh, I was clinging to the uh, toboggan behind his snow machine and all of a sudden he just sped up and he crossed a part of the Black River, which is the river the, that uh, Chalkitsik is located along. He sped up to this incredible, incredible speed. I'm hanging on for dear life to this toboggan. And then we zoomed along. We crossed the river. We zoomed along for a while. And when he stopped, I got off the toboggan. I walked up there. I said, Sam, man, you really put on a blaze of speed back there. What was that about? And he said, oh, yeah. You know, the ice is always thin there. And uh, I was afraid that if we went slow, we'd go, we'd go through the ice. It's like... 30 below zero, and this guy is making a high-speed crossing of thin ice. Well, he knew what he was doing, and we got away with it. In the lakes, of course, um, it's different. The ice freezes first at the, uh, at the edges, and then it freezes on out toward the center. So the thickest ice is always around the edge, not exactly at the immediate edge, but once you're a few feet or a foot or two off the edge, you'll be on the thickest ice, and then the ice tends to get thinner out toward the middle. That's an important thing to remember. People like my friend Sam Herbert would check 
ice when there was no snow on it. I don't know if you can hear this ice cracking. Beautiful, resonant, almost musical tones in this ice as it cracks. Sam would watch for the color of the ice, the deep black ice. There's always the possibility that that dark, dark ice or that extremely clear ice is thin. You have to be really careful of that. As the ice thickens, it tends to get grayer. And so you can watch for the color. You can watch for where there are cracks. I'm standing right just sort of skating along a crack here. And you can just see the thickness of the ice by that crack. And also by the bubbles that are frozen into the ice shows you how thick it is. You can also test ice by taking a sharpened pole or an ice pick and give it one firm jab. And if you, you have a little bit of experience at that, that jab, if it pokes through the ice or if it cracks the ice seriously, you can tell that it's not safe. We learned all this stuff when we were kids, really, about telling when the ice is safe because we spent so much time on it. Like these kids are doing out here tonight on Swan Lake, learning not only how to skate, but also, hopefully, how to tell when the ice is safe to be on. Playing around the edge of the ice is a good way to learn that stuff, as long as you don't do anything crazy and get yourself in trouble. Snowless ice, like this beautiful, clear ice on uh, Swan Lake that I'm skating around. I'm now skating across toward a house with Christmas lights on it. I'm skating on a path of reflected moonlight the tracks of the other skaters zigzagging and wavering and looping back and forth in front of me. Snowless ice freezes fast, but when there's snow on the ice, it can freeze very slowly, even when it's intensely cold. So you have to be especially careful on that kind of ice. The weight of snow as it accumulates, like in the interior of Alaska, once you get a foot and then two feet and then more, accumulations of snow, the weight of that snow can press the ice down. And as it does that, water flows up through the cracks and through the holes that are kept open by muskrats in the ice. And so you can have flooding on top of ice no matter how thick it is. And you have to really watch for that. In one way you can tell that that I learned from my friend Sam Herbert and other people I traveled with up in the interior villages is if you look ahead and you see a place where the surface of the snow sags down a little bit, that can warn you that there is thin ice up there. So those are some little tricks that you may or may not ever need to know. There's another kind of dangerous ice up in the North Country. It's sometimes called hanging ice. That is on a narrow creek or a slough. The surface of that thing will freeze over and then the water level drops, leaving a space, even, even, even underneath ice that's a foot thick. It can be hanging above, oh, a foot or two feet or three feet of just open air and then either water or just dry earth underneath it or another layer of ice that has refrozen underneath there. That hanging ice can be mighty dangerous if you're walking or driving a dog team or snowmobiling. You can, uh, you can have that stuff break out from under you and go tumbling down amid a, a big confusion of chunks of ice. A man named Edwin Simon, a Koyukon man, from the village of Huslia told me a story of a time that he nearly died. Edwin is 
Oh, he died himself some years ago, but he was a pretty old man at this time. He was probably 70 years old, and he was out checking his beaver traps on a lake some, oh gosh, miles away from the village of Huslia where he lived. And he told me that he went up to this beaver house and he didn't realize there was thin ice there and he plunged through that ice. The beaver going back and forth from their house in their what are called underwater runways can keep the ice quite thin around, around their house. And uh, Edwin fell through this ice. He was just walking and his snow machine was a little ways away. And he had a very hard time getting back up onto the ice. One of the reasons that people usually carry a, a hunting knife or an axe when they're in, in, on thin ice so that they can have something to jab into the ice to pull themselves back up, not just with their bare hands. Well, it took Edwin a long time to get back up on the ice. And uh, by the time he did, he was very cold. It was winter. It was below zero. And he got to his snow machine soaking wet and figured the only chance he had was to just drive that snow machine back to the village because he didn't have any dry matches to light a fire. People often would warn me that when you're out traveling on the ice in the wintertime crossing the rivers and stuff, you should have matches in your shirt pocket, matches in your pants pocket, and matches on your dog sled or on your snow machine so that you've got several sets of matches and you can light a fire if you ever go through. Well, Edwin didn't have that, so he got on his snow machine, and by the time he got home, his clothing, his mittens, everything was frozen, and he was actually kneeling on his snow machine and couldn't move. He simply couldn't get off that machine because his, he was encased in frozen clothing. And he felt that it was a complete miracle that he had survived. You know, he was able to yell and people came out and got him off the machine and warmed him up. Well, that's the kind of thing that an old Koyukon man in his 70s was able to survive. I don't think many of us would. In the spring, when the ice starts to melt, then there is a whole new batch of dangers. Uh, holes open in the ice, the muskrat holes open up, the water drains down through them. The ice becomes an odd sort of thing. It's like the ice is composed of many, many needles. And even if it's a foot thick, you can plunge right through it. Even a very light weight can go through that kind of ice. So you have to be really careful of ice when it's thawing. Now, Swan Lake, where I'm skating right now, in another week or two, if we get warm weather, Swan Lake could be like that. It could be needle ice and very, very dangerous. I went through the ice one time when I was living up north. I was traveling along with my dog team on the Black River near Chalkitsik, and my dogs were out in front of me, and all of a sudden they started going down, and the next thing I knew I was going down. But I was really lucky. I was in a very shallow riffle, and uh, I managed to get myself and the dogs out of the water pretty quickly. When you think about a dog team, it's very, very different from a snow machine because on a snow machine, you're sitting on top of a very big weight. You're sitting right on top of it. The snow machine, the only brain that's associated with a snow machine is your own. Whereas with the dog team, you've got this string of animals out in front of you. They're lighter and they're kind of testing the ice and they're smart. You've got this intelligence out there and all these senses, these eyes and ears. And if they feel the ice starting to give, they will turn or stop or 
try to do something. And so you got this little warning system, unlike the Iron Dog that doesn't help you at all. And of course, you know, if you listen to the news that people go through the ice every winter. I just heard a news item the other day about that up north. People are lost much, much more these days of snow machines than that used to happen. One of the main reasons that people are traveling out there up in the north is to set traps. Uh, there are a couple kinds of animals, muskrats and beavers, that live all winter underneath the ice. How in the world do they do that? Well, they, they have dens under the edge of the, uh, the bank. Beavers have, also have beaver houses, you know, that they build themselves. Muskrats also have uh, dens under the edges of the, uh, the lake edge that they can enter under the water. And then they forage out, they go off, swim out underneath the ice and underneath the snow in that black midnight world of winter. And, uh, and the muskrats keep holes open through the ice and they do little things that the Koyukon and Gwich'in people call push-ups. They take uh, vegetation from down underneath the water and they pile it up, making like a little igloo out of vegetation covering that hole. And throughout the winter, they can come up through that hole and sit on top of the ice inside their dark black push-up and eat their food and then go back down under the water and find more stuff to eat. That's how those animals work. And people will set their traps for beavers or their snares for beavers underneath the ice. They have ways of telling where the runways are, the underwater runways that the uh, beavers go in, they take a curved stick and chop a hole or chainsaw a hole through the ice, feel for a, oh, how do I say it, like a tunnel, a dome shape under the surface of the ice that shows where the beaver is swimming back and forth, keeping the ice thinner in this kind of runway thing. And they'll set their snares in there, or they'll set their traps in there and catch these animals underneath the ice. They also set traps inside in the spring, inside those little push-up houses of the muskrat. That's how they catch them. I spent a winter traveling in the uh, Porcupine River country and the Black River country with Sam Herbert. Uh, it was a wild winter of careening through the woods and plunging down vertical river banks onto the ice, following the Porcupine River, which in some areas is so windy that it was blown clear of snow. The ice was just as clean as this ice on Swan Lake tonight. And we'd go zooming along the toboggan sort of swashing back and forth. It didn't have any traction on that smooth ice. The wind blowing, sometimes the sled blown sideways by the wind. When we'd get to his trapping cabin, Sam, Sam would sometimes go down, chop a hole in the Porcupine River ice, or several holes, and set fish hooks, baited fish hooks underneath the ice for lush, or a fish that's called lush or lingcod. After he chopped the hole, he'd cover it up with snow so it wouldn't freeze solid overnight. The snow would insulate that hole, go down there in the morning and see if he had any fish on his hooks. Sam showed me a neat trick. We were out in a big uh, kind of muskeg area. We got to this uh, little lake that had a lot of bubbles in the ice. And he said, here, I'm going to show you something. He got his ice pick off the toboggan, came and he punched a hole. He had a match ready, or his lighter, and he punched a hole in the ice, took his lighter, 
and you could hear this kind of, it sounded like air whooshing up through this hole. And he lit that thing on fire and it was flammable swamp gas that was coming up that, you know, accumulated underneath the ice. And you could stand there, you couldn't see this flame. I guess if it had been night as it is right now here on Swan Lake, you probably could have seen a blue flame. But as it was, you could just hear this hissing sound of flames that were invisible, a column of flames between Sam and I, and you could feel the heat coming off that thing. In the cabin at night, we would listen to the booming of the Porcupine River, these great resonant thundering booms as that thick river of ice cracked and expanded. Ice, you know, has a curious pattern of expansion and contraction at various temperatures. That's why ice cracks so much as the ice is doing here tonight. I, every once in a while I'll hear this. In the thin ice you have an almost musical tone to it. We would hear these great booms of the ice and uh, it was quite a strong voice of the North Country. When I lived with Koyukon Indians in the villages of Huslia and Hughes, I learned something very different about ice because those folks treat ice as a conscious, almost living thing. A thing that has its own kind of spiritual power. Uh, one of my teachers told me that when the ice cracks like that with its big deep voice, he said it's calling for the snow. He said the river or the lake wants the snow to come and cover it, that ice, and insulate it from the deep cold. In the springtime, when the ice began to break up on the Kaikuk River, every spring, people hold a church service right at the edge of the bank, and they do a sort of a combination of a Christian prayers, thanking the ice for giving them a road to travel on through the winter, and also asking, often in a traditional way, speaking to the ice in the Koyukon language, asking the ice to go away gently, not pile up and not cause floods that can destroy their villages. Stephen told me that he had once kind of insulted the ice and uh, spoken badly to it and he said after that there was a big flood and people also told a story of in the village of Galena on the Yukon River that there had been a big ice jam and the Air Force had gone out and bombed that ice jam and people thought that was a very wrong thing to do an arrogant and belligerent thing to do and they said for some years after that there were big floods on the Yukon River in that area. So what a difference, you know, in cultural view between people who pray to the ice and people who drop bombs on it. For thousands of generations since ancient humans first moved into the colder latitudes, people have been fascinated by ice. They've watched the mysterious, miraculous process of liquid water transforming into a smooth, clear, slick, solid surface. They've learned how to deal with the dangers of thin ice, how to travel on the ice, how to fish and hunt and trap and gather food on or under the ice. They've marveled at the beauty of ice. They've listened to the musical resonance or the deep, booming voice of cracking ice. They've spoken to the ice in turn or they've prayed to this great, unfathomable thing, honoring or beseeching the powers that must reside in ice. Well, 
I'm out on Swan Lake, my first ice skating of the year, along with, oh, a couple of other dozen people, mostly kids. And I would imagine that in the days ahead, if we don't get a lot of snow and if the weather doesn't change, Swan Lake will be a real center for the people of this town enjoying this odd pleasure of gliding on water. Well, I want to say again, there's beauty and fascination in every cranny of our world. All nature is the community to which we belong, and each of us is the earth singing to itself. For Encounters, I'm Richard Nelson. Thank you so much for listening. Encounters is a production of Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka, Alaska. The writer, host, and executive producer is Richard Nelson. Ken Fate is the engineer and producer. Theme music by Outback. Funding for Encounters provided by the Skaggs Foundation, the Scott A. Nathan Charitable Trust, Martha Wyckoff and Jerry Tone, the Alaska Conservation Foundation, and the Leedy Foundation.